Officials in Gaza say the largest hospital there can no longer function. Israel claims Hamas is using it for military purposes. It's Tuesday, November 14th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the Labor Department's latest inflation report is due out this morning. We'll have a preview. Plus, the Supreme Court adopts its first-ever code of ethics, but there are already questions about how it'll be enforced. Also, a closer look at independent voters in the swing state of Arizona, who now make up the largest voting bloc in the state. They're unpredictable. They're not necessarily aligned on policy issues. They're aligned in their displeasure or the reasons they don't want to be part of the two-party system. And this hour, what's behind the improving racial gap when it comes to deaths from lung cancer? In sports, Celtics win, mostly cloudy, in the 40s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Climate change costs the U.S. economy tens of billions of dollars every year, according to the fifth National Climate Assessment. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports climate change also negatively affects Americans' health. The National Climate Assessment comes out every five years. It's mandated by Congress and produced by hundreds of scientists from universities, industry, and federal agencies. The latest edition lays out the profound costs of climate change in the U.S. The report estimates that severe hurricanes, droughts, floods, wildfires, and heat waves cause at least $150 billion a year in damage. Climate change also also makes Americans sicker. Heat exacerbates respiratory illnesses and can be deadly, especially for older people or people who don't have access to air conditioning. One of the big takeaways is that the impacts of climate change are unequal and that poorer people and some people of color in the U.S. are most affected by a hotter earth. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. Health officials in Gaza say hospitals in the enclave are very desperate because of fighting between Israel and Hamas, or they're closed. Officials say Palestinian patients are dying at a significant rate. The World Health Organization's Dr. Margaret Harris says she has never seen conditions so grim. We've never seen a situation where hospitals are unable to function. We've also never seen so many attacks on hospitals. We've documented more than 130 in just a few weeks. We've not seen that number, even in other places where we have seen horrific numbers of attacks on hospitals, such as in Ukraine, it's not, it's not been of this order. The Israeli military says it found Hamas tunnels and weapons underneath the children's hospital in Gaza. This has not been independently confirmed. Jewish federations of North America and other groups have planned a march for Israel this afternoon in Washington, D.C. Organizers are calling for the release of hundreds of hostages held by Hamas and an end to anti-Semitic violence. The Labor Department releases its latest snapshot on the cost of living this morning, and NPR's Scott Horsley reports it is expected to show that inflation slowed last month. Forecasters think consumer prices in October were about 3.3 percent higher than a year ago. That's a smaller annual increase than the month before. Falling gasoline prices helped to keep the overall reading in check. AAA says gasoline prices dropped sharply in October, and that trend has continued in the first half of November. If you strip out volatile food and energy prices, though, the picture may be less encouraging. Forecasters think so-called core prices were up 4.1 percent in October from a year ago. That's little change from the month before. The Federal Reserve has already raised interest rates aggressively to curb inflation and has not ruled out additional rate hikes to bring prices under control. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street in pre-market trading, Dow futures are higher. This is NPR. 
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The new head of the Massachusetts Department of Transportation says she wants to be transparent in her role. Governor Healy yesterday tapped former Undersecretary Monica Tibbetts Nutt for the role. More now from WBUR's Andrea Perdomo Hernandez. Tibbetts Nutt has led MassDOT in an acting capacity since the former Transportation Secretary stepped down in September. Transportation advocates like Stacey Thompson of the nonprofit Livable Streets welcomed the permanent appointment. She has a lot of respect from environmental justice communities, frontline communities, and the business community, and that is really tough to balance. So I frankly can't think of a stronger pick for the position, and I'm pleased to see her in this role. As Secretary Tibbetts Nutt oversees the Highway and Rail, the RMV, and the Aeronautics Divisions of MassDOT. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Teachers in Andover are on strike for a third day today. Teachers and school officials failed to come to an agreement on a new contract yesterday. Teacher strikes are illegal in Massachusetts. The union risks accruing fines from the state depending on how long the strike goes on for. A new national climate assessment shows that ocean and coastal habitats in the Northeast are experiencing unprecedented changes. For the Gulf of Maine, that means different types of fish showing up as the water warms. By 2050, many cold water species like American lobster, Atlantic cod, and Atlantic herring are expected to decline. Commercial fisherman Bill Amaru says he used to see tropical fish show up once in a while. And now we see them rather often, and they're they're beginning to, you know, call this home because it's it's a temperature range that they can tolerate. More black sea bass, summer flounder, and longfin squid are also showing up as the water warms. On Beacon Hill, lawmakers are considering banning the use of Native American imagery on public school logos and sports mascots. Indigenous leaders in Massachusetts say the logos misrepresent and stereotype Native culture and history. State Representative Brandy Fluker-Oakley of Boston sponsored the bill. She testified yesterday that such images can negatively impact students. It would also apply to any such logos that would denigrate any racial, ethnic, gender, or religious group as well. This ban is necessary because Native American mascots reinforce negative stereotypes and generate a hostile climate for students. Last month, public school leaders in Foxborough voted to change the Native American image of their warrior logo, but they did keep the name. The Worcester Police Department is shutting down its mounted police unit. The department's interim police chief says the horseback unit's cost outweighs its benefits. The Telegram and Gazette reports retiring the program will allow the department to spend more money on training officers. The unit was first established in 2017. It consists of five horses. City officials say the department is looking into donating the horses. It's 707. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Swan Galleries, with contemporary art at auction November 16th, featuring paintings, sculpture, and limited editions from artists like Kahinde Wiley, Nan Golden, Alex Katz, and Keith Herring. Catalog, bidding, and exhibition information at swangalleries.com and on the Swan app. The Celtics beat the New York Knicks 114-98 to last night at the Garden. The Seas will visit the Philadelphia 76ers tomorrow. Tonight, the Bruins and Sabres skate in Buffalo. Mostly cloudy today. It'll be in the mid-40s. Clear overnight with a low around freezing. Sunny tomorrow and near 50. It's 36 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR.
WBUR supporters include American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at AJWS.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Leila Fadel in Washington, D.C. Israel claims it has evidence of a Hamas military compound beneath a hospital in Gaza City. This comes as Israel's military says it's asking everyone at hospitals in northern Gaza to evacuate in its pursuit of Hamas. These hospitals, though, are in desperate conditions. They've essentially stopped functioning. Staff there say patients, including newborn babies, are dying because of a lack of treatment and that there's no safe way out despite evacuation orders. For the latest, we're joined by NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv. Hi, Greg. Hi, Leila. So what exactly is Israel saying it found underneath this hospital in Gaza City? And have you been able to independently confirm any of it? So Israel is saying it uncovered this Hamas compound underneath the Al-Rantisi Children's Hospital in Gaza City. Israel forced this hospital to evacuate over the weekend, and now it has entered it. Israel's main military spokesman, Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari, went to the hospital, and he appears in a video showing a tunnel just outside the hospital and weapons in a room beneath the hospital. Here he is. Underneath the hospital, in the basement, we found a Hamas command and control center, suicide bomb vests, grenades, AK-47 assault rifles, explosive devices, RPGs, and other weapons. So, Leila, we can't independently confirm these details, and Hamas is uh, saying they didn't operate there, that this is uh, not not real. But Israel says this is why it is evacuating hospitals and that it expects to find more Hamas compounds under other hospitals. Now, some hospitals have been evacuated, but others have not. What are the conditions in the hospitals that still have staff and patients? They're just absolutely desperate. The two largest hospitals in Gaza City, Al-Shifa and Al-Quds, say they've really stopped functioning as hospitals. They don't have electricity. They can't provide any real treatment. They say patients are dying from a lack of care. Al-Shifa Hospital says it has about 100 decomposing bodies in the courtyard, in the morgue. Uh, And we're hearing today the hospital is planning a mass grave in the courtyard. Now, Israeli tanks are just outside Al-Shifa and other hospitals in the northern part of Gaza. There are regular firefights with Hamas militants who are also nearby. Israel says it's allowing, even encouraging people to evacuate, but the medical staffs say it's simply too dangerous and they aren't going to abandon their patients. So it's really just a horrific situation all around. Now, international pressure is mounting on Israel because of these horrific conditions at the hospitals, because hospitals are in the midst of war, facing attacks. Human rights groups, the World Health Organization, pointing out that international law requires that healthcare workers, patients who need care in the midst of war should be protected. Is this impacting Israel's calculation here as it moves forward? Well, outwardly, no. Israel is pressing ahead with this military campaign against Hamas, despite this growing uh, calls internationally for a ceasefire. And, And Israel is even getting pressure from allies. Now, President Biden just said yesterday that hospitals must be protected, and he hopes to see less intrusive action at the hospitals. Uh, Meanwhile, many Israelis are demanding that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu do more to win the release of some 240 hostages held by 
by Hamas. Talks are ongoing, but there's no clear or imminent deal right now. And there have been large marches outside Netanyahu's office and home. So Netanyahu and the Israeli government are facing pressure from all directions. Now, the stated goal of this war is to eradicate Hamas. It's over a month into this war. What is Israel saying about that goal? Well, uh, Israel's military has been able to go almost anywhere it wants to in northern Gaza, but it hasn't defeated or destroyed Hamas as it seeks to do, not by a long shot. So all that suggests that we're looking at an extended conflict unless there can be some sort of ceasefire negotiated. NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv. Thanks, Greg. Sure thing, Layla. In Congress, House Republicans are trying to pass a bill this week to keep the government open into the new year. House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries says that will only happen with his party's votes. In all likelihood, House Republicans will need to partner with House Democrats in order to keep the government open. Jeffries spoke with my colleague Steve Inskeep. It's commonly said that in the House of Representatives, the majority has all the power though not when the majority is as narrow and unstable as House Republicans are. They needed the Democratic minority to help avoid a government shutdown in September. Working with Democrats cost former Speaker Kevin McCarthy his job when his party's right wing turned against him, and Democrats stood aside as he fell. Now a new Speaker, Mike Johnson, is trying to pass a temporary spending bill just as McCarthy did, and it seems likely that Johnson, too, will need Democratic support just as McCarthy did. Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader from New York, seems ready to help. Extreme MAGA Republicans have repeatedly demonstrated that they cannot govern without House Democrats. That will be the case this week in the context of avoiding a government shutdown, and it will remain the case throughout the balance of this Congress. With that said, it appears that Speaker Johnson is crafting a continuing resolution, a bill to keep the government open temporarily, that would not keep all government agencies open the same length of time, which raises the prospect of more than one deadline, more than one government shutdown. Why would anyone in your party say yes to that? We have made clear that there are several important criteria for us to evaluate, including making sure that the continuing resolution funds the government at the fiscal year 2023 levels with no spending cuts. That appears to be the case. We have also made clear that democratic support for any continuing resolution would fall apart if the continuing resolution included right-wing policy provisions designed to undermine reproductive freedom, get rid of diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, efforts, or target the LGBTQ plus community. Our current evaluation of the continuing resolution presented by Speaker Johnson is that it does not include extraneous and extreme right-wing policy provisions. I think I'm hearing you saying that this is a formula that Democrats are likely to be able to support. Well, we have to have a House Democratic Caucus conversation, and we are concerned with the bifurcated approach to having different uh, deadlines for funding different aspects of the federal government. At the same time, we're taking a look at the substance of the continuing resolution proposed by Speaker Johnson uh, to determine whether it meets the needs of the American people. 
I want to ask about Speaker Johnson, who, of course, just rose to that uh, position a few weeks ago. What is your working relationship with him at this point? We have had several positive, forward-looking, and direct conversations over the last week or two since he ascended into the position. Uh, and those discussions have been candid and I think uh, held in good faith as part of an effort to try to find common ground whenever possible. It's my hope that Speaker Johnson uh, will continue to embrace a partnership when it comes to meeting the needs of the American people while understanding that there will be multiple times where Democrats and Republicans will fiercely agree to disagree. Do you view him as a member of his party's extreme right wing, as someone who is trying to control his party's extreme right wing, as some other way that you would define him? How do you see him? Well, Speaker Johnson's, uh, you know, views in terms of the very conservative end of the spectrum speak for themselves. But now he is in a different position where he has to manage the entirety of the House Republican conference and uh, figure out a way uh, to move the country forward uh, in a manner that takes into account the reality that Joe Biden is the president of the United States and Democrats are in the majority in the United States Senate. Uh, Mr. Jeffries, of course, up to now, we've just been talking about keeping the government open for a couple of uh, months, perhaps, and not talked about the substantive bills that Congress may need to pass on any number of issues, one of which, of course, is support for Israel. Um, you have supported Israel up to now. You have opposed what you view as extreme language against Israel. Um, but, of course, civilian casualties are growing in Gaza. Are you in a different place than some of your voter coalition on the Democratic side? Well, in my view, uh, it's important to continue to support President Biden and his effort to accomplish three objectives. One, we are going to continue to support Israel's effort to decisively defeat Hamas. Second, it's important that we find a way to do everything possible to bring the hostages home safely. Third, I strongly support President Biden's effort to secure humanitarian assistance for Palestinian civilians who are in harm's way through no fault of their own. Do you think that Israel is managing that third goal, humanitarian aid, avoiding civilian casualties where possible? I think it's important uh, that Israel continue to do everything that it can to defeat Hamas following the international rules of war and allowing for the provision of humanitarian assistance to Palestinian civilians who are in harm's way. Would you make any warning or advice to Israel saying effectively, I support you, but don't go too far, you'll hurt your own cause? Well, that is for the Biden administration to continue to work through with Israel, but we have to stand behind Israel and its right to defend itself, particularly in the context of the brutal, uh, horrific terrorist attack that occurred on October 7th uh, and the need to decisively defeat Hamas. Hakeem Jeffries, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we'll hear about a massive fire in California this past weekend that's indefinitely closed a section of freeway running through downtown Los Angeles. Officials now say it was likely caused by arson. It's 720. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com Mostly overcast today. Temperatures will rise to highs in the upper 40s. Those fall to the low 30s tonight and skies clear overnight. Tomorrow, sunny and a high near 50. It's 36 degrees in Boston. I'm Robin Young. Are you finding yourself supporting one side in the war between Israel and Hamas, demonizing the other side, and not liking yourself for it? How to find empathy in a time of hate. Also, Thanksgiving is a little over a week away. Here now, resident chef Kathy Gunst has tips and how does she do it? New side dishes. That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, exclusively in theaters Thanksgiving. From Paycom, Paycom guides employees to find and fix payroll errors before submission in the Paycom app. Information about employee-guided payroll is at paycom.com NPR. From Charles Schwab, committed to putting clients first, with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. Learn more at schwab.com. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Leila Fadel. We have some encouraging and surprising health news. A survey from the American Lung Association finds that people are surviving lung cancer at higher rates. NPR's Yuki Noguchi reports. Lung cancer is the most lethal form of cancer in the country, killing 127,000 people last year. Historically, people of color were diagnosed at later stages than their white counterparts. Lower access to treatment also reduced their likelihood of survival. But remarkably, the report not only shows improvement in the five-year survival rate for all people, but it jumped even more by 17 percent among people of color in the past two years alone. Zach Jump has never seen such rapid change. It was unexpected. Jump is director of epidemiology and statistics for the Lung Association. The welcome surprise, Jump says, is that this bucks a trend across healthcare in which racial disparities in access to care is worsening. Honestly, that is our next question, trying to find out what the driving factor is behind it. Jump says one reason people are living longer or recovering from the disease is more effective treatment. We hadn't had any change in lung cancer treatment for decades. It was the same chemo. And suddenly you started getting these targeted immunotherapies, and it was a paradigm shift. Survival rates could be higher, he says, if more people at high risk got annual low-dose CT scans, which are an effective way to catch the disease early. Jump says last year only 4.5% of those eligible were screened for lung cancer, a rate far below that for breast or colorectal cancers. 
Jump says he hopes screening rates will improve, pushing survival rates higher. It's rare to see such dramatic improvements in cancer care and survival rates over such a short time, especially in ways that benefit disadvantaged communities. So often, cancer care in general, and lung cancer especially, moves at a pretty slow pace. So being able to see significant progress over a couple-year span has been very exciting and definitely a cause for optimism. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News. A new generation is discovering flamenco through artists like Rosalia. Now, there's a new musician entering the game. Maria Jose Yergo spoke with NPR's Lili Quiroz about her debut album, Ultra Belleza. Maria Jose Yergo tells us a lot about her life story in one particular song. And I'll translate the title here, Super Powerful. When I wrote Super Poder, I was thinking about my family, thinking about the superation of our family, always fighting against everything. She started gaining this strength since birth. She had to go from hospital to hospital until the age of 16. When I was a child, I was always ill. I couldn't grow up. My hormones hormones were like crazy. <laughs> and I needed to be in the hospital once, twice a month. And it was so hard for me and, and my parents. Yergo is proudly from Pozo Blanco, Spain, a small town in Andalusia. There, her grandfather was the first person to teach her about singing. He's my favorite philosopher, <laughs> my maestro. Growing up in the countryside under his watch, she also learned to appreciate nature. She alludes to this throughout her album. While he was taking care of the garden, I was there listening to him when he was singing. For me, it's very beautiful to have been with the music in my first years of being a child, a baby, because I was always playing with my voice. Though nature is her biggest inspiration, the other is... Society. Where I live is my big inspiration too, because flamenco is classic music of Andalusia, the south of Spain. The value of flamenco is bigger than the Torre Eiffel. <laughs> For me, we can learn about our past, learning about the lyrics. Felix Contreras is co-host of the NPR podcast Alt Latino. He says Yergo's experimentation of flamenco music won't be embraced by a lot of purists. After all, she's challenging a rich, deep history. I equate it to what's going on with the blues here in the United States, right? Because it kind of comes from the same place of pain and marginalization. And yet it's been developed into this internationally recognized sound that to mess with it, you're crossing the line sometimes with people. And 
I love the fact that she's completely ignoring genres and rules and boundaries and creating her own thing. That's what's exciting to me. Though flamenco is a big part of Spanish identity today, it hasn't always been that way. Flamenco is thought to have largely originated with the Romani people, a group that was ostracized and even persecuted throughout history. Yergo doesn't have any Romani heritage, but she says she's honored to carry on the culture. I am only an admirer of flamenco, and I really appreciate this music. So I learned flamenco, I listen to the old people. What do you feel about flamenco going into mainstream music? It's fine to spread the winds of flamenco music. It's my favorite music. I want to <laughs> listen it around the world. My flamenco has roots, but winds too. And on the topic of following in the footsteps of Rosalia, Yerko says, I am myself. I am not the next Rosalia. I am the first Maria Jose Yergo. Lily Quiroz, NPR News. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, the Labor Department releases its latest report on inflation later this morning. Experts expect it'll say that costs for consumers continued to ease, mostly because of falling gas prices. It's 7.29. WBUR supporters include the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. And The Huntington, in a co-production with Speakeasy Stage, presents The Band's Visit, playing now through December 10th at the Huntington Theatre, HuntingtonTheatre.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Kristen Wright. The U.S. Supreme Court is adopting a code of ethics for justices. This comes amid growing criticism over wealthy benefactors giving gifts and trips to justices. Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito have been criticized for their relationships with political donors and others. ProPublica reporter Justin Elliott has been covering the story. He spoke to NPR's Morning Edition. Judges and and other legal observers we talked to said this is significant because uh, lower court judges for for a century now have had uh, some sort of written ethics code. So having something explicit in writing that uh, the the media and the public can look at and and measure justice's conduct against uh, is meaningful, even though there's no actual uh, way to enforce it that's laid out in the code. The U.S. House is expected to vote today on Speaker Mike Johnson's proposal to fund federal agencies to avert a government shutdown Friday. It's a two-part temporary spending plan. In Gaza City, the main hospital is at the center of Israel's military pursuit of Hamas. Here's White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. We do not want to see firefights in hospitals. We want to see patients protected. We want to see hospitals protected. Health officials in Gaza say patients are dying from a lack of care and no food or water. This is NPR. This is WBWAR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi.
More now on the looming federal budget deadline. One member of the Massachusetts All-Democratic Congressional Delegation is preparing to help avert a government shutdown. The deadline for that is Friday. Congressman Jake Auchincloss says he wants the passing of a continuing resolution, which would keep the government funded, to be a bipartisan effort. He tells CNN that Democrats are willing to negotiate with Republicans, like they did in September, as long as allies overseas are funded. I said it was the last time I was going to support a continuing resolution without clear, credible and concrete steps to support our allies overseas. Ukraine then and Ukraine and Israel now. So if House Republicans cannot demonstrate that they have credible and concrete plans for how they're going to support our allies overseas, I think Democrats need to draw a tough line. Augengloss says he's willing to compromise on border security measures in order to get funding to Ukraine and Israel. On Beacon Hill today, state senators will take up a multi-billion dollar spending plan. It includes $250 million for the state's emergency shelter system. The House passed its version of the bill last week, but the Senate version gives Governor Healy more control over how the money is spent. Lawmakers have just two days left to iron out the differences and approve the plan before they adjourn through the holidays. An enterprising project is exploring how to bring electric vehicle chargers to underserved communities in Massachusetts. As WBWAR's Paolo Morta reports, the state is funding the research as part of a larger mission to expand communities' access to clean energy. Shante Davidson and her co-founder got a $50,000 grant from the state to research potential EV charger locations, particularly in Black communities. Davidson says it's critical that everyone benefit from clean tech. As we are electrifying everything, specifically EVs, that we are ensuring that there is electric vehicle infrastructure in black and brown communities. They want people to benefit not only from access to chargers, but also from the jobs created to install and maintain them. Davidson will share her recommendations for installing EV chargers with the state next year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. It's 7.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. Make it three wins in a row for the Celtics. They beat the New York Knicks 114-98 last night at the Garden. The Seas will hit the road tomorrow to play the Philadelphia 76ers. Tonight, the Bruins visit the Buffalo Sabres. Highs in the upper 40s today under mostly cloudy skies. It'll clear up tonight and fall to around freezing. Sunny skies tomorrow will have highs near 50. It's 37 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grantchester's Morvan Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss and from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. 
And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Investigators here in L.A. say arson likely caused the massive weekend fire that has indefinitely shut down a major freeway through downtown Los Angeles. City, state, and federal officials are working around the clock to get the 10 freeway back up and running for the some 300,000 people that use it every day. Until then, drivers are bracing for significant delays. Here's L.A.S. reporter McKenna Sievertson. At the burn site Monday afternoon, construction crews and heavy machines were working through the piles of charred wooden pallets under the 10 freeway. At a press conference there, Governor Gavin Newsom said the preliminary investigation shows there was, quote, malice intent behind the fire. That it was arson and that it was done and set intentionally. That determination of who is responsible is an investigation that is ongoing. The space under the freeway where the fire started was being leased to a local company by Caltrans, the California Department of Transportation, and its federal partners. Newsom said the state has been legally tangling with that company for months. He said they had stopped paying rent and were subleasing the site under the freeway illegally to at least five other tenants. Newsom says officials are going to take a very close look at all of the leases on lands Caltrans owns to make sure they're in compliance. The magnitude of this crisis suggests a sober review and reflective review of the lease terms. City and state officials still don't know when the damaged stretch of freeway will be able to open again. Newsom said preliminary structural samples came back more positive than expected, but they need more test results to decide if the damaged stretch can be repaired or if it will need to be demolished and completely rebuilt. There were 16 unhoused people living nearby, but LA Mayor Karen Bass says the city needs to be united as we wait for more answers and not scapegoat. There is no reason to assume that the reason this fire happened was because there were unhoused individuals nearby. Newsom encouraged the community to help find whoever is responsible for the massive fire by calling a confidential line with any potential tips or information about the incident. L.A. residents are also being asked to work from home if they can or take public transit if they need to get around downtown. For NPR News, I'm McKenna Sievertson in Los Angeles. We're about a year away from the 2024 presidential election, and one of the most critical states will be Arizona, which is why NPR's Asma Khalid recently went there to hear what's on voters' minds. Hey, Asma, good morning. Good morning, Leila. So what were you trying to figure out in Arizona? Well, I was fascinated that the largest political party in Arizona is no longer a party, right? It's not Republicans. It's not Democrats. If you look at exit polls from the 2022 midterms, independent voters made up about 40% of the electorate. I mean, that's a jaw-dropping number. And Tom Riley, who studies independent voters, he's a professor at Arizona State University, he told me that these voters are all over the political spectrum, from the most conservative to the most far-left progressives. The issue with independent voters is they're unpredictable. They're not necessarily aligned on policy issues. But they're aligned in their displeasure or the reasons they don't want to be part of the two-party system. Riley told me he's noticed a lot of veterans are identifying as independent. My name is Bud Metter. I'm 77, I think. Retired military after 42 years of service. I met Metter in Sun City West, which bills itself as the nation's premier active adult golf retirement community. It's about 45 minutes from central Phoenix. Metter recently left the Republican Party. And it was a long decision. We had wrestled over that for a long time because we just didn't like the way the contentious atmosphere becoming more personal, more low-rent, low-class commentary coming out of some of the Republican candidates, Donald Trump in particular. 
Metter is intrigued by people like North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, though he didn't even make the GOP debate stage last week. He's also interested in West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, a Democrat who's quitting the Senate to travel the country and explore the possibility of a centrist movement. Metter's wife Jane chimes into the conversation. I still lean toward Republican outlook, but I'm not finding that we have the leadership in that area. And so I'm willing to open my mind and look wider than just the Republican Party. But the Democrats are not coming up with anything either. So right now, I don't know what I'm going to do when it's time to vote. I'm not even sure I'll vote. Jane Metter has voted religiously all her life, but she does not like Trump's behavior. And she thinks Biden has been a disaster on border security and inflation. The economy is terrible, especially in this community. You have senior citizens on fixed incomes that are being squeezed. Plus, like a lot of voters, the Metters say Biden is just too old. Experts say one thing that might sway how independents vote is who else and what else is on the ballot next fall. And one key issue could be abortion. Here at the Arizona State Fair, volunteers are gathering signatures for a ballot initiative to create a constitutional right to abortion. Would you like to sign a petition to protect a woman's right to choose in the state of Arizona? Okay. Or do you live in Maricopa County? I do. Ever since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, whenever the question of reproductive rights has been put directly to voters, they have supported abortion rights, even in some more conservative states, like Ohio just last week. Here in Arizona, people, mostly women, signed their names and had a similar message. I think every woman has a right to do what they have to do. It's a woman's choice. I feel like everyone should have the right to choose. Yolanda Espinoza, Sarah Kaufman, and Izzy Dubin all want to see expanded abortion rights in their state. But they all also say they do not align with the Democratic Party. Independents skew young, like Izzy Dubin. She's 29. She's no fan of Donald Trump. She says she's neutral on Biden. But as a mom of a young daughter, protecting a woman's right to choose is fundamental. I try to educate myself on issues that are important, and I think this is an important one. Asma's back with us now in the studio. Hi, Asma. So if abortion makes it on the Arizona ballot, what does that mean for Biden? Well, this ballot initiative could boost turnout. I mean, that's what we've seen in some other states. And the thinking there is that that could potentially help Joe Biden. Um, voters like Dubin will show up to vote for abortion rights. And while they're there, uh, you know, some Democrats think maybe that could help because they might cast a ballot for Biden. But Chuck Coughlin told me there's also something else at play in Arizona. He's a political operative who worked with former GOP Senator John McCain. I've always claimed that Trump is the best Democratic turnout machine that's ever existed. He is very effective at turning out the Democratic and unaffiliated base to make sure he doesn't get elected. Coughlin himself has been an independent voter since 2017, and he thinks that next year he may vote for Biden. You know, Biden is not particularly popular in the polls, but Coughlin points out that despite what a poll here or there might say, the reality is Trumpy candidates have not managed to win independent voters in Arizona since 2016. And you just can't win the state without them. NPR's Asma Khalid bringing us voter voices. Thank you so much for your reporting. Good to talk to you. This is NPR News. 
Coming up at the top of the hour on WBMR's Morning Edition, the federal government releases a report card on climate change today. It shows that U.S. carbon emissions are falling, but not by enough to avoid the intensifying impacts of sea level rise and extreme weather. Mostly cloudy and upper 40s today, clear skies and low 30s tonight, sunny and near 50 tomorrow. Right now, it's 37 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com And the University of New England in Maine with a mission to support healthy people, healthy communities, and a healthy planet. UNE.edu Boston-based General Electric will pay the city of Pittsfield $8 million next month. It's part of a large payout to cities and towns along the Housatonic River, which so far totals $55 million. The payments are part of a plan to clean up industrial chemicals known as PCBs from the river. As Nancy Cohen reports, those include a toxic waste dump in Lee near the Lennox Line. Lee and Lennox each received $25 million from GE last week, plus interest. The Lee Select Board is recommending that $20 million be put into a high-interest-bearing account to offset costs for new public safety and public works facilities. Select Board Chair Bob Jones says that could reduce tax increases for those projects. And the rest of the funds? The board is recommending a committee decides how that money might help people who live near the proposed dump. We want to see how we can help those property owners that are most impacted by this rather awful development. A special town meeting in Lee in early December will vote on it. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. With Thanksgiving right around the corner, here's something to be thankful for. Inflation is coming down. The latest cost of living report from the Labor Department this morning is expected to show lower annual inflation in October than the month before. Now, falling gas prices get much of the credit for that, but other prices have remained stubbornly high. NPR Scott Horsley joins us now. Scott, I was at the supermarket yesterday. It was crowded and it'll probably be crowded all the way up to Thanksgiving. So when people get to the supermarket, what kind of prices can they see? Good morning. Well, it's a mixed basket. Uh, The centerpiece on many Thanksgiving tables could be a relative bargain this year. Wholesale turkey prices have tumbled almost 30 percent from a year ago. Uh, Michael Swanson, who's a food economist at Wells Fargo, says even though turkey farmers had to pay a lot for the corn and soybeans they feed their birds, they didn't hold back. And there is a lot of poultry in the pipeline. All of them put a lot more birds in the barn and they're heavier birds. So there's a lot of turkey available right now, and they just have to price it down to move it. Of course, a lot of grocery stores discount turkey anyway to get choppers in the door. Other Thanksgiving staples could be more expensive, though, this year. Canned pumpkin prices are up about 30% from a year ago. Canned cranberries are also more expensive, but get this, fresh cranberries are actually cheaper this year. And taste your too, if you ask me. Uh, We always say food and energy costs are volatile, and that is certainly on display right now. 
Fresh is always better. Now, California aside, where gas is still over five bucks a gallon, around the nation, Scott, it seems like gas prices are falling, aren't they? That's right. And that's a big reason uh, that forecasters expect headline inflation to be down in October, uh, around 3.3%. AAA says the average price of gas is down about 40 cents a gallon from this time last year. Uh, So that's good news if you are planning a Thanksgiving road trip. Uh, And and there are nearly a dozen states now, A, not counting California, where the average price is under $3 a gallon. Some of those gas savings, though, could be offset by rising costs for other things like rent and health insurance. Uh, We're also going to be keeping an eye on new car prices to see if there was any fallout from the auto worker strike, which ended at the end of October. You know, economists like to focus on so-called core inflation, which strips out those bouncy food and energy prices because core inflation is considered a better indication of longer-run trends. And core inflation is expected to hold steady in October and could even be a tick higher than the month before. All right. So then what does it mean for the Federal Reserve and its ongoing battle to bring down inflation? Yeah, it means Fed officials are going to be on alert. Uh, Inflation has come down a lot from its four-decade high last summer, but it's still above the central bank's target of 2%. And Fed Chairman Jerome Powell warned last week there's still a chance that interest rates will have to go even higher to get prices under control. Now, surveys, looking at surveys, they suggest that a lot of people are still unhappy about inflation, even though it's come down from its peak. So what's going on there? Yeah, one thing Fed officials have been pointing out lately is that even when inflation is truly tamed, and we're not there yet, that doesn't necessarily mean prices are going to go back to where they were when this all started. So if that's what you've been hoping for, uh, Fed Governor Chris Waller says you are likely to be disappointed. People have in their mind right now is, I want prices to go back to where they were in 2021. That's not going to happen. These prices are probably there forever. Now, we have seen some actual price declines, uh, notably things like gasoline and eggs, for example. In general, though, the the Federal Reserve's goal is just to slow the increase in prices to a level where inflation is not something we all have to worry much about. NPR's Scott Horsley. Scott, good to chat again. (laughs) Good to be with you. This is NPR News. Coming up at 8.20 on WBWAR's Morning Edition, President Biden is condemning the surge in violence against Palestinians by settlers in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. It's 7.49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation, knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city. The Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community, workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield, think really far, like out of this world. And liftoff of Artemis 1. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. President Biden says Gaza's largest hospital must be protected from the violence caused by the Israel-Hamas war. A new federal climate report shows no part of the country is safe from climate disasters like rainstorms, hurricanes and wildfires.
And the U.S. Supreme Court has adopted a code of ethics, but it's unclear if the new rules will be enforced. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use. ALPrime.com. Upper 40s and mostly cloudy today. Skies clear overnight as temperatures fall to around freezing. Near 50 tomorrow under sunny skies. It's 37 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. Alejandro Pilar Vasquez, Ashley Loring Heavy Runner, Ida Beard. Those are just three names on a list that the Bureau of Indian Affairs says extends to 4,200 unsolved cases of missing and murdered people. Tamara Truitt Jeru is the executive director of Alaska Native Women's Resource Center. We can't wait anymore. This is urgent. Alaska Native and American Indian people in particular, they're not the ones we're seeing up you know, on the billboards, unless the family's paying for it. It's a very sad testament to how we treat our Indigenous people in this country. Truett Giroux is also on the Not Invisible Act Commission, which created a 200-page report from the accounts they heard from families. It was heartbreaking. I mean, even though a person disappears, there's still part of your heart, and people want answers. And the systems aren't in place to assist, especially family members, um, to answer those horrifying questions. And so your heart and brain just continually runs a scenario that is never a positive outcome. Mm. Had anybody really listened before? I think that's a part of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that the hope that the commission would have some impact on the things that were creating roadblocks for answers or helping to prevent it altogether, that was a huge piece of why people stepped forward and wanted to be heard. Many people talked about the lack of being heard by law enforcement. So trying to find ways for those types of agencies to communicate with families ongoing is important. What is or who is responsible for such a high number of unsolved killings and reports of missing persons in Indigenous communities? Well, that's a pretty big answer. There's huge jurisdictional pieces that create a myriad of responders. So who is taking responsibility if the person that you love was last seen in a jurisdiction that uh, is not a tribal jurisdiction? Mm -hmm. Or in Alaska, where the Alaska State Troopers are responsible for investigating, but they have a hundred other communities they're working with. The other end of that is these misconceptions that you have to wait 24 hours to report someone missing. And everywhere we went, law enforcement said, that is not true. You do not have to wait 24 hours. Or when someone reported a missing person and they just would make comments like, well, maybe they ran away Hmm. or they're off partying or whatever that response is, but not taking the reports of missing persons seriously. 
I mean, I can see that the findings, first of all, there's no blanket answer in your recommendations, but a lot of them also seem to say law enforcement needs to take them seriously. There needs to be access to law enforcement. Families need to be heard. I mean, why isn't that happening already? Good question. Why isn't it happening already? Absolutely. Law enforcement needs to change their procedure and their attitude, but there's a lot of work to do. Families need to be heard, and they need to be heard and responded to in a way that they may have information that isn't being taken seriously to help in the investigation. Having this report out in the world for loved ones of these thousands of missing and murdered people, does it give them solace? My hope is yes. At least they can see that we really seriously heard them. And we want others to hear you so that we don't have to be begging, just begging for some help to find their loved one. Tamara Truitt-Giroux directs the Alaska Native Women's Resource Center. She's also a member of the Not Invisible Act Commission. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. A Mississippi mother wants the U.S. Justice Department to investigate her son's death after an off-duty police officer's vehicle struck him. Get this, it took nearly six months before the woman learned that her son was dead and buried in a common grave. Here's Mississippi Public Broadcasting's Michael McEwen. More than 250 days after Betterstein Wade Robinson reported her son Dexter missing to the Jackson Police Department, she and other relatives wanted to give him a proper burial. Justice! Yesterday, they came to an overgrown field in the shadow of the Hines County Penal Farm to watch the exhumation of his body, which had been scheduled for 11.30. But when they arrived, a group of inmates had already set his body on an open-bed trailer. Betterstein Wade said not being there when her son was removed from the grave broke her heart. I asked, can I zoom my child and try to get some peace? Now y'all take that from me. I can even see him come out to grow. Officials say Dexter Wade was attempting to cross Interstate 55 by foot in early March and that the collision was an accident. When Betterstein hadn't heard from him for more than a week, she reported him missing. At the time, Dexter Wade was in the county morgue and identified by a prescription pill bottle found in his pocket. But city officials didn't notify his mother of his death until late August, after he'd been buried at this pauper cemetery. Betterstein says city officials told her it was a gap in communication. Is that fine with the system? Is this how the system works? Is this what I'm living in? And I'm living in Mississippi. And this is what I got to deal with? That I don't even matter. Civil rights attorney Ben Crump is representing the family. He said the exhumation should have happened with everyone present. That exacerbates the reason why we have to have the Department of Justice conduct the investigation from beginning to end. Because what happened to Dexter Wade in March and what happened to Dexter Wade here today reeks to the high heavens. County officials have not yet said why Wade's body was exhumed before the scheduled time, nor who gave the order. The family has scheduled an independent autopsy. For NPR News, I'm Michael McEwen in Jackson, Mississippi.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. WBUR supporters include Joy Street and Brick Bottom Artists Associations. See the work of over 80 artists at Joy Street and Brick Bottom Open Studios this weekend. Brickbottom.org slash events. And Loomis Sales, proud to support Boston Medical Center and their Supporting Our Families Through Addiction and Recovery program. Committed to helping families enhance their children's development and providing support for recovery with access to specialty care and social services. Learn more at bmc.org. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden calls for the protection of hospitals in Gaza that Israel says are being used by Hamas as command centers. It's Tuesday, November 14th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Biden is also condemning rising violence against Palestinians in the occupied West Bank. They're attacking Palestinians in places that they're entitled to be. It has to stop. Also, a sweeping new U.S. government report shows just how much climate change is affecting some people more than others. Climate change disproportionately affects those who've done the least to cause the problem. And this hour. We know that the energy industry is one of the fastest growing industries for jobs, but it's also one of the least diverse. A new project in Massachusetts aims to create jobs building electric vehicle chargers in neighborhoods of color. Mostly cloudy in the 40s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The House of Representatives is expected to vote today on a short-term spending bill. It's to avoid a late Friday night government shutdown. NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports Speaker Mike Johnson is facing defections from some Republicans who want deeper spending cuts. The proposal by Speaker Johnson is a two-step funding bill. Four federal agencies are funded through January 19th and the rest through February 2nd. A block of House conservatives say they will vote no because the legislation continues current funding levels and they want steep spending cuts. With the razor-thin GOP majority, Johnson is going to need support of Democrats to pass the bill. Maryland Democrat Steny Hoyer criticized the GOP approach of setting two different deadlines, but signaled Democrats could help approve the bill. Democrats don't want to shut down the government. Uh, I think this is a bad process that he set up. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer postponed a procedural vote to move a spending bill in that chamber to let the House act first. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol. The nation's fifth climate assessment has been released. The survey finds climate change costs the U.S. economy tens of billions of dollars every year. The assessment points to damage from hurricanes, fires, droughts, and heat waves. Fighting between the Israeli military and Hamas militants continues in Gaza. The Israeli military is telling people in northern Gaza to evacuate to the southern part of the enclave. But NPR's Greg Myrie tells us health officials in Gaza say hospitals can't do that because of the fighting. 
the two largest hospitals in Gaza City, Al-Shifa and Al-Quds, say they've really stopped functioning as hospitals. They don't have electricity. They can't provide any real treatment. They say patients are dying from a lack of care. Al-Shifa Hospital says it has about 100 decomposing bodies in the courtyard, in the morgue. Uh, and we're hearing today the hospital is planning a mass grave in the courtyard. NPR's Greg Myrie reporting. The leaders of the United States and China meet this week to discuss their country's tense relationship. NPR's Emily Fang reports it's been a year since Presidents Biden and Xi last spoke face-to-face. Both countries have been signaling they want more calm in their relationship. There's been a flurry of official visits back and forth this year. Despite initial delays after a Chinese weather balloon was found floating above the U.S. this past February. The Chinese foreign ministry said Xi Jinping will have an in-depth communication with President Biden on Wednesday at the APEC summit in San Francisco. The two men will talk about security concerns regarding the conflict in the Gaza Strip, as well as Taiwan, a self-ruling island China claims as its own. The U.S. and China will also try to reestablish high-level communication on topics like controlling fentanyl precursor chemicals, most of which are made in China, and military affairs. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei, Taiwan. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coastal sea levels are expected to rise about 11 inches by mid-century. That means a higher risk of coastal flooding here in the Northeast. It's one of the findings in the fifth National Climate Assessment released this morning. WBUR's Barbara Moran reports on what some cities and towns are doing about it. As flood risks increase... More New England communities are using nature-based solutions, like restored marshes that can absorb extra seawater during storms. Joe Christo is with the Stone Living Lab in Boston. He says these approaches often work better than traditional seawalls. When you think about salt marsh restoration, you think about things like dune restoration and coastal parks. I mean, these are just such a better approach when it comes to quality of life for residents than a big gray wall that's blocking you off from the waterfront. The report says that coastal flooding will occur five to ten times more often by 2050 than today. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. School is canceled again today in Andover. Teachers there are entering their third day of a strike. School officials and the teachers' union were unable to come to an agreement on a contract yesterday. Teachers are asking for higher pay and more family leave. The New England Revolution may soon be one step closer to building a soccer stadium in Everett. Lawmakers plan to take up a proposal that would change the designation for the site the stadium would be built on. Right now, the location on the Mystic River near the Encore Boston Harbor Casino can legally only be used for marine industrial work. The mayor of Everett tells the Boston Globe the stadium is a step in converting the area into an entertainment district. State wildlife officials are calling the second year of their Share the Harvest program a success. The program donates locally hunted venison to veterans groups. Mass wildlife biologist Martin Fian calls the program a win-win. He says hunters can keep hunting after freezing all the meat they'll need and ease the overpopulation of deer in the state. This is an, an, essentially another outlet for those hunters that really want to have the opportunity to be able to harvest additional deer keep those hunters in the woods for the conservation need, but at the exact same time have this incredible opportunity to be able to address food insecurity in the Commonwealth. The state says hunters are on track to donate about 6,000 meals this season. That's four times last year's number. It's 8.06. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds, working to maximize the impact of charitable giving and to create customized philanthropic solutions. Learn more at FJC.org. The Celtics topped the New York Knicks last night at the Garden. The final was 114-98. to The Celtics will begin a road trip tomorrow when they visit the Philadelphia 76ers. Tonight, the Bruins will visit the Buffalo Sabres. Mostly cloudy today. It'll be in the mid-40s. Clear overnight with a low around freezing. Sunny tomorrow and near 50. It's 37 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. The Supreme Court has adopted its first code of ethics. All nine Supreme Court justices signed on to the self-imposed code seven months after the public learned that two justices had accepted lavish gifts from Republican donors. But compliance with the code is essentially voluntary. It doesn't have an enforcement mechanism. So is it enough to regain the public's trust? Amanda Frost has been following this. She's a law professor at the University of Virginia who testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee on Supreme Court ethics. So, uh, Professor, considering it's all voluntary, does this change anything for the justices? Yes, I think on the one hand, it's a step in the right direction. The court responded to public pressure, all nine put into writing the ethical code that they now say they will follow. And I think that does suggest that they are taking these concerns seriously and that the public pressure has made some difference. But I'm also concerned by the lack of an enforcement mechanism and by the suggestion in the opening statement to this code that it's all been a misunderstanding and they've been following these rules all along, which just isn't true. So that lack of an enforcement mechanism, what kind of oversight would you suggest, would you propose? Yeah, so ideally, Congress would take action and enact legislation that would put in place mechanisms for oversight, perhaps something like an inspector general for the uh, Article Three for the judicial branch of our government, which could oversee the justices, the lower courts, and personnel, um, or the a code of conduct and uh, an enforcement mechanism such as already exists for the lower federal courts would be another option. All right. Now, to be clear, Professor, politically, maybe it might be delicate for the current Congress to pass you know, ethics legislation for the court, but they can, right? I mean, they absolutely can if they want to. Nothing else is stopping them. Oh, yes. Con- Congress has constitutional authority to regulate the court. Of course, it must maintain the court's decisional independence, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about regulating the conduct and the ethics of the justices, which is what Congress has done for centuries. It requires the court members to take an oath of office in which they promise to be impartial. It oversees their budget. It sets the size of the court and the quorum and the dates they meet. And this is the role that the Constitution intended for Congress to play. But if I say, well, you know, Professor, they're, they're, aren't they a separate government body? I, I thought that one doesn't tread on the other. Yes, I mean, separation of powers is important, but we also have a system in our Constitution of checks and balances. And no branch of government was intended to operate entirely unaccountable and unresponsive to the others or to the public. Um, in fact, that's the beauty, the beauty of our democracy and our constitutional system. And the court has never operated entirely free from Congress's regulation. And I think the problem recently has been the court seems to take the view that it is above 
all supervision and oversight. And I'm glad to see this small step um, in favor of the court acknowledging that that indeed the public should expect more than what the, the court has done in the past. Now, according to Gallup, most Americans today do not approve of how the court is doing its job. So do you think this uh, new code of ethics could maybe change that? You know, I hope so, because we need a strong court. We need a judiciary which the public has faith in and trusts. And I have been concerned when I've seen the erosion of that trust. So I would hope that maybe this code of conduct, but also future adherence to this code would help restore public faith in the court. Amanda Frost is a law professor at the University of Virginia. Thank you very much, Professor. Thank you. Climate change is affecting every part of Americans' lives with huge impacts on the economy and people's health. And now we know more about those impacts and what they hold for the future thanks to a new report out this morning. It's the federal government's latest national climate assessment. It lays out how climate change is altering our lives and who is paying the biggest price. Rebecca Hersher from NPR's Climate Desk is here with more. Good morning. Good morning. So this is the most important climate report the federal government does. The last one came out five years ago. What's new this time? Well, we have a much better handle on how expensive climate change is, and the numbers here are huge. So, for example, the cost of disasters, severe hurricanes, floods, wildfires, heat waves, droughts, they cause at least $150 billion in damage every year. That's according to the report. That is a lot of money. It's equal to the total budget of the Department of Energy every year. The report also estimates the less tangible costs, though, in our daily lives, like the mental health toll of surviving a disaster or just the cost of wildfire smoke. These are wild. The report estimates that there are billions of dollars in lost wages every year when it's too smoky for people to safely work outside. Billions of dollars in lost wages. Who's bearing most of the cost, according to this report? You know, the big one is that climate change has these unequal effects. That's what the report says. Some Mm -hmm. people do suffer more than others. So, for example, people of color in the U.S., they are disproportionately affected by heat. Temperatures are higher in neighborhoods that were subject to federal housing discrimination in the 20th century. It's also true that poor Americans are at higher risk from climate change. For example... You know, if you can't afford to run your air conditioner during a heat wave, that can be dangerous. Farm workers and construction workers, they're more likely to face deadly heat at their work. Catherine Hayhoe is one of the lead authors of the report, and this is how she puts it. Climate change disproportionately affects those who've done the least to cause the problem. Because, of course, climate change is caused by greenhouse gas emissions, you know, mostly from burning fossil fuels like oil and gas at huge scale. But the people who are most affected by climate change usually aren't responsible for the most emissions. And one thing that this report lays out, really for the first time in a document with this much influence, is that America's fossil fuel-powered society is profoundly unjust. Now, you called this report influential. Why does this one carry more weight than other assessments? You know, it's because it affects things that are just in our daily lives all around us. This information is what governments use to make concrete decisions about, like, where to build houses or build a new highway or how to regulate what comes out of car tailpipes. It's it's really sophisticated. It's the most complete picture of how climate change affects the U.S., so it's a really big deal. So you mentioned a lot of problems. Do the scientists who wrote this report offer any solutions? They don't prescribe specific policies, um, but they do lay out some facts, like addressing climate change can make the U.S. a fairer place to live. So, for example, Mm -hmm. right now, if you're poor or if you're not poor, but you're black or Hispanic or indigenous, you're more likely to live in a place with polluted air. 
And as we move away from fossil fuels, that means less air pollution. So two birds, one stone. But concrete policy decisions, they're really up to people with power, right? Not scientists. Rebecca Hersher from NPR's Climate Desk. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks. Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville's long protest against Pentagon abortion policy, which has held up hundreds of military appointments, may soon come to an end. That's because the Senate Rules Committee plans to take a vote today that could open a path for those appointments to go through. Tuberville's Republican colleagues recently spoke out against his protest, saying it's hurting military morale. Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett heard echoes of that argument when he spoke with some of Tuberville's constituents. Montgomery, Alabama was recently named one of the nation's top five military defense communities. It's home to Maxwell Air Force Base, so Veterans Day is a big deal. Every year, former Marine Darren L. Harris looks forward to getting together with fellow vets on November 11th at the 11th hour. And I'm always encouraged, always inspired to see other veterans, but most importantly, to see the community to come behind veterans and to really understand what this actually means. Harris is a member of a group called Veterans for Responsible Leadership. He's disappointed Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville has been blocking nearly all military nominations since February, which he says hurts military readiness. Because we are seen all around the world as the number one security force and military in the world, Tommy Tuberville's actions, or I should say inactions, have placed the world at risk. Recently, Tuberville's colleagues in the Senate have also been expressing their disappointment. The fact that other Republicans in the Senate are encouraging Senator Tuberville to back down, I think that's telling. Richard Lede is a political science professor at Troy University. He says Tuberville's actions may be working well for his conservative constituency in Alabama. But I'm not so sure that this is playing out in a positive manner for Republicans across the country. We've seen recently several states have given the choice to the voters, and voters have overwhelmingly supported women's health care. Democrats scored big wins in recent state elections where abortion rights were an issue. John Wall is the chairman of the Alabama Republican Party. He says Republicans in Alabama don't have a problem with Tuberville's unyielding protest. They understand the fact that Tuberville's holds do not actually prevent the jobs from getting done. It just prevents salary increases or titles. And so there's not actually a heavy blowback. But there is one sentiment he keeps hearing from those in the military. They don't want to pick a side. They don't want to be stuck in the middle of this. Back at the Veterans Day celebration in Montgomery, I stopped to speak with James Pearson, who was in the Army for 29 years. He doesn't mince words when I ask him about the hold on military appointments. Hate it. He's frustrated with Tuberville and his Senate colleagues, who he thinks should have acted sooner to end the blockade. But he's mostly concerned about morale. Because he's holding up promotions for people that serve the military. And it's hurting them. You know, they dedicated their life to serve this country, and he's holding up their life for something that they had nothing to do with it. And he's worried they'll leave the military if they feel their careers are going nowhere. A Senate committee is now acting to find a way around Tuberville's hold on military appointments. For NPR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Montgomery, Alabama. 
This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, Republicans in the U.S. House are proposing cuts to the IRS budget. That would be on top of decades of underfunding for the agency. We'll look at how a further diminished IRS budget would impact taxpayers. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And ThoughtForms Custom Builders, committed to building high-performance, healthy homes, supporting the MIT Sloan Sustainability Initiative's mission to empower leaders to act so humans and nature can thrive for generations. ThoughtForms-Corp.com at mitsloan.mit.edu slash sustainability. Since I've set up the Legacy Gift, I feel like a real member of WBUR's family in a big way. And that makes me feel really good. Build a strong future for WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org legacy. It's been two decades since the world lost the singular voice of the man in black. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. A new book remembers Johnny Cash's voice, songs, and legacy on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. Today is the last day commuters will be able to reload their Charlie cards on the T website. The T is launching a new website, which will do away with the reloading function. But commuters will still be able to buy commuter rail, ferry, and bus passes online. The new site goes live tomorrow at 8 a.m. Mostly overcast today, temperatures will rise to highs in the upper 40s. Those fall to the low 30s tonight and skies clear overnight. Tomorrow, sunny and a high near 50. It's 38 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, exclusively in theaters Thanksgiving. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Fadil. Ori Gavati is an Israeli military veteran. He grieves with his country. I'm talking to you now in the, probably the most devastating time in my life as an Israeli. You know, family members texting me from their basement that there are terrorists in their home. Luckily, they survived. But the Hamas attack last month that took the lives of so many civilians in Israel has not changed Gavati's position on his country's occupation of Palestinian territories. We have been saying it failed because we know how it works as soldiers who are sent to maintain it, to expand it, to entrench it. It failed before October 7th, but now more than ever we know it failed. And that means we have to change course. Because in the end of the day, it doesn't matter how many Palestinians we will kill in this war in Gaza. There will be Palestinians in Gaza. It doesn't matter how many Palestinians we kill or arrest or settlers expel from their homes in the West Bank. There will be Palestinians in the West Bank. 
So the only viable future here is to change course. Now, Gavati's gaze is in part on Gaza, but he's also watching the occupied West Bank where he once served. There, Palestinians are living in fear of attack. Settler violence in the area has more than doubled from earlier this year, according to the UN, and that occupied territory is part of what Palestinians had hoped would be a future state of Palestine. But for years, Rapidly expanding Israeli settlements have eaten away at those lands. The U.S. and the U.N. say they're illegal under international law. Settler violence is not new, but today what we're seeing in the West Bank is the peak of this violence. Settler violence targets these communities because they understand that by attacking a Palestinian community in their agricultural lands, if they do it with enough persistence, they can make them move away. Gavati is with Breaking the Silence. It's an organization of Israeli military veterans who are against their country's occupation of Palestinian territories. They collect testimony from other former soldiers to educate Israelis on the occupation. He says last year, eight Palestinian communities were fully pushed out from the West Bank. And in just the last month, 15 more communities were emptied. I find this terrifying because, you know, I am an Israeli. I'm talking to you now from the village where I grew up, Kfar Monash. Just heard the explosions over my head of interception of missiles from Gaza. And I grew up here believing that what we are doing with our military is 100% for the security of Israel. And that's why I joined to be a combat soldier. Because I wanted to protect my country and my friends and my family. And when I see the military that I joined used as an employee of the settler movement, this process is terrifying for me. It's already devastating for the security of Israel itself. He says he saw it when he served from 2010 to 2013 and later as a reservist. Gavati says soldiers weren't independent enforcers of law and order for everyone. He says they were sometimes even based inside the settlements and sometimes worked with the settlers. So when settlers were violent toward Palestinians... You don't have the orders to stop them, but what you do have orders for is protect the Jewish community. We don't have orders as soldiers protect everyone in the area. That doesn't exist. We have hundreds of testifiers. None of them said that they received an order to detain a settler attacking a Palestinian, even though it's the most simple order. Israeli human rights groups say well over 90% of these attacks on Palestinians end with no one held accountable. And unless a soldier is involved, the Israeli police typically deal with Israeli citizens accused of violence. Meanwhile, Gavati says Palestinians in this area live under the authority of Israeli forces. Occupying millions of people for decades means you control their everyday life. The first command I received as a soldier in the West Bank was our mission is to make all of the Palestinians feel like they cannot lift their heads up. We have to make sure that they know who's the boss. How do we do that? We make sure that all of the Palestinians cannot pass a day without understanding who is controlling them. For example, one of the missions is called a mock arrest. A mock arrest is when a group of soldiers invade a Palestinian home in the middle of the night. They arrest the father usually, and then bring them back because we're just training for a future mission. That's terrifying, though, for that family. Exactly. Imagine the impact to the kids, to their wives, to the family. Gavati says all of this had been encouraged by Israel's right-wing government. President Biden has condemned the attacks on Palestinians by extremist settlers, saying it's pouring gasoline on the situation. They're attacking Palestinians 
in places that they're entitled to be. It has to stop. Following this concern from Washington, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu did something rare. He publicly condemned a, quote, tiny handful of people who take the law into their own hands and said that Israel would act against it. But within hours, his office added an additional statement saying he told President Biden the accusations against the settler movement are baseless. The extremists, he says, are not from this movement. Throughout the years, we heard all of our leaders, I'm not talking only about Netanyahu or talking about the people who are considered more moderate, saying condemnations about settler violence and how they are rotten apples and how we must stop them while doing nothing about it. Nothing. Now, Biden's statement is very important, but to prevent forcible transfer, which is happening every day in the West Bank, we need more than words. We are now in a place without direct intervention from the international community. The forcible transfer of Palestinians will go on and on. We're now seeing settlers exploiting the fact that eyes are on Gaza. But what do you mean by intervention? Intervention can be anywhere from limiting the weapons to the settlers, to differentiation of settlements, labeling products, all the way to sending international forces to the West Bank. All of these options are there. It's not my job as a former Israeli soldier to tell them exactly what to do. They know what to do. The only thing they need is to actually understand that words are not enough and they have to start using so many tools that they have on their table right now. They just need to use them. Ori Givati, Advocacy Director at Breaking the Silence. Thank you for your time. Thank you. This is One Perspective, One Voice. For more coverage and for differing views and analysis, go to npr.org slash updates. This is NPR News. Thanks for being with 90.9 WBUR. Today's top stories are next and coming up at 845 on Morning Edition. WBUR's Paula Mora tells us about efforts in Massachusetts to help communities of color benefit from the growing clean technology industries. It's 829. There's nothing like live radio with the WBUR app. You can listen live on the road, on a walk, and in the kitchen. Get the free WBUR app today. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. And Good News Garage, accepting tax-deductible car donations and providing them to neighbors in need since 1996. Goodnewsgarage.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Kristen Wright. The World Health Organization says the humanitarian crisis in Gaza is like nothing the U.N. agency has ever seen. Dr. Margaret Harris says even premature babies are left without treatment. Al-Shifa, the hospital that's now falling apart and under intense, uh, with intense fighting around it and many strikes and a lot of damage, is, was the only place that could look after those babies. 
and they can't look after those babies. So where are they going to go? Health officials say most hospitals have had to close. Those still open are under major strain. Large crowds are expected at a march in support of Israel today in Washington, D.C. Organizers say they want to show solidarity with Israel and demand the release of hostages held by Hamas. The U.S. House could vote today on Speaker Mike Johnson's stopgap spending measure to avert a government shutdown. Texas Republican Congressman Chip Roy said Monday he won't support it without provisions for border security. And if I can get one thing I want, maybe I can believe we can do something to secure the border of the United States and help the people in Texas who are dying for us to do something for them. Lawmakers have until midnight Friday to pass a funding bill and avoid a shutdown. President Biden is headed to San Francisco today ahead of talks with Chinese President Xi Jinping. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Harvard is again delaying its report on its medical school's body donation program months after a former morgue manager allegedly sold donors' body parts. The university now says the report should be released, quote, in the coming weeks. WBUR's Ali Jarmanning reports that in the meantime, Harvard has also halted any new body donations to the medical school. Harvard has three outside experts reviewing its anatomical gift program to come up with suggested improvements, but the report has now twice been delayed. Families of those who donated their bodies to Harvard say they've heard nothing from the school since June. Amber Hagstrom's mother, Donna Pratt, donated her body to Harvard in 2020. Hagstrom says she's desperate for answers. There's been absolutely nothing from them. And I feel like like they just don't care and that there is no empathy towards any of the families. Harvard's report is separate from a criminal investigation against former morgue manager Cedric Lodge. He has pleaded not guilty. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmanning. State officials hope a new program expediting work permits for migrants will free up some emergency shelter space in Massachusetts. The state is running a clinic to expedite the process through the end of this week. Kate Freilich with the Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Advocacy Coalition works with immigrants living in state shelters. She says work authorizations can often take months to process. Because not only do you have to apply, but then you have to go get biometrics done. So you have to get fingerprinted and get a photo taken. And so that can, you know, add to the process. So this clinic will bring that all into one place. The latest data from the state showed 22 families are on the wait list for emergency shelter. Massachusetts has the best record in the country for screening, early diagnosis, and treatment of lung cancer. That's according to a report released today by the American Lung Association. Dan Fitzgerald is the association's director of advocacy in Massachusetts. He says despite the good news, more can be done. Even with us being number one in the nation, in this report, it was only 11.9% of those eligible here in Massachusetts actually got a lung cancer screening. Lung cancer is still the leading cause of cancer deaths in Massachusetts. The report found Asian or Pacific Islander patients are least likely to be diagnosed with lung cancer while in the early stages. UMass Lowell is getting rid of nearly two dozen workers to ease its budget crunch. The school's chancellor says 23 staffers took buyouts. She adds another 60 positions were eliminated or frozen. The chancellor says UMass Lowell is dealing with the $37 million budget deficit. She blames a drop in enrollment and higher costs.
It's 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. The Celtics finished their three-game homestand undefeated. They beat the New York Knicks last night 114-98. to The Seas begin a week-long road trip tomorrow when they visit the Philadelphia 76ers. Tonight, the Bruins are on the road against the Buffalo Sabres. Highs in the upper 40s today under mostly cloudy skies. It'll clear up tonight and fall to around freezing. Sunny skies tomorrow will have highs near 50. It's 38 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the law firm Cooley LLP. With offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Leila Faldin in Washington, D.C. Former British Prime Minister David Cameron, who resigned in 2016, is back. Yesterday, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak fired his home secretary and brought on Cameron as foreign secretary. So what does the shakeup say about the shape of British politics? Alistair Campbell is with me now. He was a press secretary and campaign director for the Labour Party, which is the opposition to the current government. And now he hosts a podcast called The Rest is Politics. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for being on the program. So I want to start with Cameron's return. How is Mm -hmm. it being received that Prime Minister Sunak is bringing Cameron on? Well, it was one of those kind of jaw-dropping moments that very occasionally happen in politics. You mentioned the podcast there. We did a a special episode last night, and we've just been looking at the figures. It's it's had the biggest response to any episode we've ever done. Mm. So people are definitely interested in it, interested in him, interested in what it says about Rishi Sunak and the direction he's trying to take the country. So I think it's bold and it's interesting, but I think it's fraught with risk for the Conservatives. I think the first thing it shows is they're a bit desperate. Uh, a lot of m- members of the House of Commons, which is elected, will be thinking, why are they having to go to the ha- put somebody in the House of Lords to give us a foreign secretary? Mm. And also, I don't know how many of your listeners would have followed it closely, but it follows an, a sort of seemingly never-ending dispute between Sunak and his home secretary, a woman called Suella Braverman. Um, he finally, somebody I think she, he should never have appointed, but he appointed a big mistake, and he's now had to sack her. And to try to sort of stabilize things, he's brought back David Cameron. So, so what does it say, It's a big, though? bold move, but it's fraught. Ew, you say it's fraught. What does it say about Sunak's government that he's bringing on Cameron? Partly a lack of talent, uh, partly the need to try to have a few sort of big beasts around the place. But also I think it's, it's him trying to signal that he made a mistake in pandering to the sort of, you know, what you would identify as kind of MAGA Republicans. We've got a, a smaller version of that here. Braverman, was, the Home Secretary, was part of that. And this is him saying, I tried that and it's not worked and I'm going to try something different. Um, but it's also fraught because, of course, David Cameron 
was the architect of austerity, uh, which has done a lot of damage to our public services. He was the guy who decided to hold the Brexit referendum, which has, I think, been an utter catastrophe for the country. Um, and also there's some very interesting foreign policies. The foreign secretary, one of the, the things that he was often criticised for when he was prime minister was a much, much, much closer relationship with China, which a lot of people in his party and the government now see as having been a mistake. And also while he's been out of of office he's been involved in you know a lot of people leave office and they go off and make money and he's been involved in a in a, a scandal frankly of a guy called lex greensill who i think is still under criminal investigation and uh, cameron made 10 million dollars lobbying for him so that that sort of issue that's gone quiet will probably come back up again so a lot that the Labour Party maybe can spin here about this government. But what could the appointment of Cameron to Foreign Secretary say for the UK on the global stage just in the few seconds we have left? Well, I think on that, I mean, he's obviously having been a prime minister of the UK for, you know, for a fair long time. And, you know, we've had we've had uh, five prime ministers since. Is it five or five? I can't remember how many. We've had a lot of prime ministers who haven't lasted very long. He was there for a fair old while. Mm-hmm. I think he is seen as somebody who's, despite Brexit, carries a certain mm-hmm. amount of credibility with him. We'll have to leave it there. Alistair Campbell, thank you so much. My pleasure. All the best. Bye-bye. Alistair Campbell is the host of a podcast called The Rest is Politics and a former press secretary and campaign director for the Labour Party. What would happen if Congress stripped $14 billion from the IRS budget? That's what House Republicans want to do in order to pay for additional aid to Israel. Democrats oppose that plan, and Senate leaders have said that bill won't get a vote. But we wanted to understand who the winners and losers would be if the IRS underwent the dramatic budget cuts Republicans want. So we called on Vanessa Williamson. She studies taxation at the Brookings Institution, and she says the nation's revenue agency has been underfunded for 40 years. And what that means is the IRS can't do its job, right? They can't hire new agents. They can't hire agents that have the sort of technical capacities to be able to look at the tax returns from very wealthy people, for example, who have very expensive people working on their side. They don't have the resources they need to do their jobs. We've underfunded the agency in a way that makes things harder for average Americans. It makes it a lot easier for people who are trying to avoid paying their taxes. Does it make financial sense for the U.S. government to cut funding to the IRS? Uh, The IRS is the Internal Revenue Service, right? So that means they raise the revenue. Uh, If you cut the Internal (laughs) Revenue Service, we get less revenue, right? This is apparently confusing, but it's a matter of addition and subtraction. So if you cut the IRS budget by a dollar, you tend to lose two dollars. I liked how you even laughed at the question. I mean, but I guess the question then is why? Then why has it been such a Republican priority, frankly, for a while now? And obviously it's in the news now. There's this House bill that wants to cut billions of dollars from the IRS to pay for aid to Israel. Why the IRS? Well, I think that it's a symbol on the right. I think that for Republicans, the capacity of the government to tax has become, you know, since the Reagan era, this symbol that the government has a right to take some money from all Americans and use it for public purposes. And I think at the end of the day, that's not a basic function of government that the Republican Party is convinced is important. Let's talk about what falls through the cracks when the IRS is underfunding. That would be really important. So there are two sides of this, right? There's the part that is making taxpaying easy, right? So the IRS answering the phone, all the things that are sort of the customer service side. Mm -hmm. The other piece is enforcement. And that's really important. In fact, it's the thing Americans think is most important. If you ask Americans what they 
are most upset about when it comes to our tax system. It's not how much they pay, and it's not even how complicated the tax system is. It's the idea that rich people and corporations aren't paying their share. So if we don't have an adequate enforcement system, we're failing to address the number one concern Americans have about the tax system. So if you don't have an adequate enforcement system, how does the IRS pick and choose who they go after? So what we've seen is that as the IRS funding has declined over many years, and this is partly a congressional priority, the Congress asked the IRS to focus more on lower income tax filers. But what we've seen is that people in the top 0.1% of earners are as likely to be audited as people earning the earned income tax credit, which is a work credit for low income families. What that meant, of course, is that poor people are getting audited at this very high rate because they don't have the resources to explain why they needed this credit. They get you know, mail from the IRS. It's intimidating. They often don't respond. What it meant was that poor people were getting audited at really high rates and also that black Americans were getting audited at really high rates. So there is a very discriminatory aspect of the audit system. And one of the things that this funding would have done is push the audits back to where they belong, to the top, where the tax gap actually is, where the money isn't coming in among the really rich earners. Vanessa Williamson is a senior fellow at the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center. Thank you, Vanessa, for your time and your insights. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at what might be lost if House Republicans succeed in their proposal to eliminate the budget of the Federal Women's Bureau, which has advocated for working women for more than a century. Mostly cloudy and upper 40s today, clear skies and low 30s tonight, sunny and near 50 tomorrow, it's 38 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. Amtrak is joining the push to relocate the U.S. Postal Service from its site next to South Station in order to expand the station. The effort, led by Governor Healy, would use the site to add more train tracks, which would allow more service in and out of the station. The Boston Globe reports Amtrak has joined the State Transportation Department and the MBTA in supporting the effort. A cafe modeled after the one in the hit show Friends opens today in Boston. Central Perk Coffee on Newbury Street is not an exact replica of the one in the hit show. Designers for the site say the shop imagines what the famous cafe would look like today. The menu includes items inspired by characters and plot lines on Friends. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com. This is WB Wars Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Most people who've taken advantage of electric vehicle rebates in Massachusetts so far live in wealthy communities. But the state wants access to EVs to be more equitable and is considering ways to do that. One project it's funding focuses on how to bring EV chargers to black communities while also boosting jobs and highlighting local landmarks. WB Wars Palomora explains. Shante Davidson and her co-founder launched their business, Impact Energy, to bring clean power to underserved communities. 
Davidson says it's critical that everyone benefit from clean tech. As we are electrifying everything, specifically EVs, that we are ensuring that there is electric vehicle infrastructure in black and brown communities. More people might consider buying an EV if there's a charger in their neighborhood, even if they don't have a garage to charge in. And it's more than just access. Impact Energy wants to make sure communities of color benefit economically, too. We want to make sure that specifically black people don't get left behind. Her company got a $50,000 grant from the state to research potential EV charger locations in underserved communities, particularly black communities. They are looking for businesses that might be interested in having an EV charger, for parking spaces with electrical infrastructure, and for locations with historical significance. All right, we are off. Davidson and her co-founder, Pamela Fan are driving around Brockton looking at businesses and their parking spots. So our first stop is going to be at the Messiah, um, it was a Baptist church, Pam? They pull into the church parking lot. And that was the first church that was um, in existence for the black population in Brockton. And the reason why that's really important is because there used to be laws on the books where black folks couldn't congregate. Davidson and Fan named their project after the original Green Book, which was a guide for black drivers to find safe stops during segregation. They're adding a new green layer by focusing on electric cars. So it's the real green, green book. <laughs> it's the real green, 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 green book. <laughs> they hope by placing chargers in historical places, they can highlight underrecognized landmarks, like stops on the Underground Railroad and places where Frederick Douglass gave speeches. And local businesses can benefit while people wait for their car to charge. One of the original Green Book stops Impact Energy wants to highlight is Slade's Bar and Grill in Boston's South End. The jazz bar hosted icons like Muhammad Ali and Martin Luther King Jr. Co-owner Brittany Papil is interested in getting EV chargers. Slade's being involved in green energy at this point it really continues to cement its rich history. Impact Energy will gather their recommendations into a report for the state. Then, the company can apply for an implementation grant. There's almost $400 million in state incentives for building EV charger infrastructure. Nearly one-third of that money must go toward installing chargers in communities of color and low-income neighborhoods. And Impact Energy co-founder Fan wants those jobs to go to people in the community. We know that the energy industry is one of the fastest growing industries for jobs, but it's also one of the least diverse. If the project succeeds, it could serve as a model for others for how to bring clean energy and more business dollars to their neighborhoods. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moura. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have a preview of this week's planned meeting between President Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping, plus the new protected area for endangered whales in the Caribbean. It's 8.50. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. 
An innuendo in Natick. With Hunter Douglas Duet Architella PowerView shades for homes and offices. Hunter Douglas PowerView Automation at Innuendo and Innuendo.com. I'm Robin Young. Are you finding yourself supporting one side in the war between Israel and Hamas, demonizing the other side, and not liking yourself for it? How to find empathy in a time of hate. Also, Thanksgiving is a little over a week away. Here in our resident chef, Kathy Gunst, has tips and how does she do it? New side dishes. That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. The House is set to vote today on a proposal that would keep the government funded past Friday and avert a shutdown. A Labor Department report finds that inflation eased to 3.2 percent last month, with prices staying mostly flat. And a new report card on climate change shows that U.S. carbon emissions are falling, but not fast enough to mitigate sea level rise and extreme weather. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Informed communities essential for healthy democracy. KnightFoundation.org. Upper 40s and mostly cloudy today, it's 39 degrees in Boston. Inflation in the U.S. took a break for the month of October. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. And by Affinity, provider of the CRM for the private capital relationship economy. Affinity knows who has the best relationship with the right startup. Affinity.co slash marketplace. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. Between September and October, prices did not rise. According to the CPI out this morning, compared to a year earlier, prices were up 3.2%, but that pace represents a significant slowdown in annual price increases, more than what surveys show economists expecting. Meanwhile, the House of Representatives is getting ready to go through some procedural votes to keep the government open for the short term and not run out of money after this Friday and partially shut down. The credit rating agency Moody's has lowered its outlook for America's credit rating to negative, citing what it called continued political polarization and large deficits. But it hasn't quite downgraded the country yet. Fitch, on the other hand, has earlier this year, which raises the question, what does it actually mean for a country when its credit gets dinged? Marketplace's Nancy Marshall Genzer reports. If you or I got a ding to our credit rating, banks would see us as a riskier bet. It could be harder to get a loan. Not so for the federal government, says Mark Goldwine, senior vice president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. People are still investing in the United States of America. The U.S. borrows money by issuing treasury bonds. Investors still see those bonds as a safe haven, and they still think the U.S. will pay them back. But the lower outlook from Moody's is just the latest warning. Goldwine says two other rating agencies have actually lowered their U.S. credit ratings from AAA to AA+, which is still good. And so this isn't a time to panic, um, but it is maybe a time to assess how do we make sure our fiscal house is in order and our political system is functioning so that our debt doesn't get out of control at some point in the future. 
Goldman says right now our debt isn't sustainable, and if interest rates stay high, in two years interest payments will become the federal government's second biggest expense, exceeding spending on Medicare and the defense budget. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers. S&P and Dow futures soared on that positive inflation news. S&P futures up 1.1%. Dow futures up nine-tenths of a percent. The 10-year interest rate, also known as the yield on the 10-year treasury, is down to 4.475%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers comprehensive cybersecurity protection while automating cyber defense to stop threats so organizations can thrive. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. And by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Betterment, the automated investing platform that helps make it easy to be invested for the long term. Learn more at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Now to a man who for more than half a century has been considered by many to be America's consumer advocate in chief, Ralph Nader, an instrumental force behind safety standards for cars, cleaner water, whistleblower protections, and more. Nader has run for president four times and has spent a career challenging abuses of corporate power. He now has a book out today where he actually praises some uses of corporate power. Nader's found a dozen examples of company CEOs who he sees as being forces for good. Mr. Nader spoke to my colleague, David Brancaccio. What's gotten into you, sir? Being nice to CEOs? Are you mellowing? <laughs> well, after a lot of years going after the big CEOs for bad behavior, I thought we needed some comparative yardsticks. Over the years, I've got to know and learn about 12 CEOs in a whole variety of businesses who did it right. You have some very big top-of-mind names among your list of 12, Yvonne Chouinard, the Patagonia guy. But among the 12 you feature are some, I would say, non-household names at this point. Gino Pellucci from Minnesota. This guy founded 70 companies, Chunking Foods, some will remember, Gino's Pizza Rolls, many will remember. What should the world learn from Mr. Pellucci's example? Well, he grew up real poor in the Iron Range of Minnesota, and he described conditions for the miners beyond belief. And he never forgot where he came from. And then he said, uh, well, I'm going to go out on my own. And he started one company after another. But he uh, insisted on labor unions in his company. And he championed the cause of labor because, again, he never forgot where he came from and how horrible the conditions were in the workplace for his family. Lots of interesting people on the list here in the book. Anita Roddick from The Body Shop. We interviewed her over the years. Herb Kelleher, that character, founder of Southwest Airlines. I mean, he was a character, right? He insisted on reversing the business model. So when, when Southwest was successful, he was the lowest paid executive among all the big airlines, United Airlines, Delta. And when I asked him why, he said, because I started with my people. He would never say associates or employees. If you treat our people well on the airlines and at the counter, they will treat the customers well, and the customers will fly on Southwest Airlines more, and that will make the shareholders happy. So that's what I mean by reversing the business model. 
what is it among your hopes here for this book is that maybe it would be added to i don't know business school curricula yeah there's just millions of students uh, there are business majors in undergraduate courses and of course business schools and they need a book like this as part of their curriculum to elevate their expectations of the role of business in our country and alert them to what they may be required to compromise in terms of their own principles and keep their conscience at home by bad business practices. And that's what this book hopefully will help turn around. Consumer advocate Ralph Nader, his new book, brand new, is called The Rebellious CEO, 12 Leaders Who Did It Right. Mr. Nader, thank you very much. Thank you, David. That was Marketplace's David Brancaccio there, and there's a lot more to that conversation. David also asked Mr. Nader about whether corporate definitions of capitalism are shifting generally beyond just caring about shareholder value. You can listen to the full conversation at Marketplace.org. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. WBUR supporters include the Edward M. Kennedy Institute, hosting corporate events in a replica U.S. Senate chamber and high-tech multi-use spaces. Visit emkinstitute.org events. And Solar Gardens, offering solar subscriptions that allow households to access the benefits of solar power through off-site solar fields. Learn more at solargardensma.com. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.